All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us for a Friday edition. This would be uh, what you would call back patent day. So we're glad that you're here for that. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville, and uh, happy to serve in all those positions. All right, uh, let's dive into a little bit of news here. I want to talk about the economy. Well, uh, actually, we're probably going to have to wait till the next segment to do that, or the one after that, because I have a sea of documents sitting here on my laptop, and I have no idea which one is the economy. Let's see. Let's see if this one. Um, if this is not the document that I need, we'll have to, ah, it is. So that's good. We got the report yesterday from the commerce, commerce department about the U S economy. And honestly, the numbers are pretty good. Now there's some things that appear to be headwinds that could derail the economy. And it's not all good news, but there is some good news in the economic numbers. And so that's good for the United States. I mean, I, I, I really am surprised when people who are conservative seem to celebrate bad economic numbers when Democrats are in power, because we should never celebrate something that causes pain to the American people or celebrate something that is an indicator that there are fundamental problems with the U.S. economy that could end up putting a lot of people out of work and hurting a lot of people. I mean, I, I want the numbers, regardless of who's in the White House, to be good because that's what's best for the American people if those are if those those numbers are legitimate. So the economy in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty two cooled down a little bit and we had a number of tech uh, companies that have announced some pretty big layoffs. So in the fourth quarter of 2022, the economy grew at a seasonally adjusted rate of 2.9%. So we grew in the fourth quarter. Now, if you remember, we, we had back-to-back quarters where we had a decline, which technically meant we were in recession. But for the fourth quarter, we had 2.9% growth. And the, the previous quarter, uh, that is, that would have been the third quarter growth, was 3.2%. So we're down a little bit. We dropped under 3% in the fourth quarter. And, of course, last year, I mean, if you look at the fourth quarter in 2021, um, growth economic growth was at 5.7%. So that's a significant decline from a year ago, but it's still growth. It's still in the positive. Um, so it's slow growth, but the economy's making some progress. Going forward, we have an unemployment rate of 3.5%, which is also very good. I mean, historically, you get down to 3.5, 3.2. Um, anything in that neighborhood and below is considered full employment because you're never going to have everybody working at the, at the same time, there's always going to be people in transition. So anything in that range is usually when economists start talking about full employment. 
Jobless claims fell by 6,000 to a total of 186,000. So again, a decrease in jobless claims from the previous month, which is also good news. Now that, and that's a solid number. But here's, here are the headwinds. First of all, we're still dealing with a significant amount of inflation. Now, it could be, I mean, it's actually good news that the Fed has taken the drastic action that they've taken in, in interest rates, and yet we're still seeing slow but growth in the economy, 2.9%. Even with the inflate, when you, when you start talking about, you know, just every time you turn around, you've got interest rate increases, um, that can really cause uh, some major problems with economic growth um, and lead to, uh, you know, real decline in buying power for the American people. And, of course, that's happened. Inflation has cooled off a little bit. We're down to in the 75 to 8% range, uh, which is good compared to where we were with inflation. And but now we start we're starting to see energy numbers creep back up. I don't know if you noticed, but you know, we got down to around 289. Sometimes if you looked around, you could find gas at around 275 a gallon, 280 something like that. Um, and now this yesterday morning, uh, well I noticed this week at the beginning of the week it was 309. It had gone all the way up to 309 and now it was it's 319. For the last couple of days, as I checked up Wade Hampton Boulevard on the way in to do the show, um, and I noticed by this morning it had dropped back down to 315. So I don't I don't know what that means about gas prices. It means that we're paying more at the pump again, and I don't know what the source of that is. But um, you know, we got through the midterms, we got through Christmas. Obviously, uh, the holidays are a high volume traffic time. You've got a lot of people flying, a lot of people driving, and that could have been a supply and demand issue. Um, but really, the prices should have gone, and you know, and, and so the prices went up, and then they came back down right after the holidays. So now why, the question is, why are we starting to see an increase in gas prices at the moment? Um, war in Ukraine, you know, the typical suspects that the Biden administration is going to blame because they don't want to have a conversation about how this particular administration has completely abandoned the opportunity that we had as, as a country to be completely self-sufficient. I mean, we're just not going to be aggressive in promoting the building of more refineries, uh, natural gas exploration, uh, shale you know, extracting uh, oil from shale, all, all of that is is going to languish during the Biden administration because they want wind power, solar power, battery power, um, stuff that's non-sustainable. I mean, the reason I say it's non-sustainable is because it's not dependable. The sun doesn't shine at night. You can't collect solar power when it's cloudy and raining. You know, the wind wind power wind, uh, power is not generated if the wind doesn't blow. I mean, there's just all kinds of issues with depending on independable or undependable, I should say, power sources. And the Biden administration wants to continue to do that because it pleases the left-wing crazy base of the Democrat Party. So 
Here's some, here's some more numbers just real quick, and here's this is concerning because of the number of layoffs that we're seeing. Google's, uh, Google's parent company announced that they're laying off 12,000 people. That's 6% of their workforce. Microsoft cut 10,000 jobs. Wayfair cut 10% of their workforce. Amazon laid off 18,000 people. I mean, they were laying off people in December. Usually Amazon is hiring people in December. They laid off people in December. Considering that these companies took off and made big profits and had fast growth during COVID because of all the lockdowns and people using their services during lockdown, a lot of economists say, well, this is just these companies trimming the fat. But the problem is they're not laying off receptionists and gophers and people that maybe would have been hired um, you know, as a super, superfluous expansion. They're laying off programmers. They're laying off bread and butter people, uh, the people that make the company work, which means that has to be connected not just to the rapid growth and cutting back. It's got to be connected to the fact that they're worried about their bottom line, their ability to be profitable. On Thursday, IBM laid off 3,900, and they weren't particularly affected by COVID. And uh, SAP, which is Europe's largest software company, reduced their employment by 2,800 workers. So all of these layoffs are sort of a harbinger of the possibility of a real slowdown in the economy in the next quarter. We hope that's not going to happen. These economic numbers in the fourth quarter of 2022 were actually pretty good, um, you know, uh, given all things taken into consideration. But going forward, do these layoffs suggest that the economy's weak and that inflation is still a serious problem, which we know that it is, and then the question of what's up with energy prices? We now welcome to the program District 11 Senator Josh Kimberly, who represents Spartanburg, and we're glad to have you on the program today. We're going to go kind of fast because we don't have a lot of time. We've got a lot of questions. How are you doing? Well, good morning. I'm doing well. I'm just got to get ready for the lightning round here. So. Yes, the lightning round. Let's start with uh, lightning strike on educational choice. How did that debate go yesterday, and where are we? Well, we did vote closer to sit down the Democratic oppositions. There, of course, was a Democratic filibuster attempt. We we broke that yesterday, so we invoked cloture and shut down debate. So I, I assume Tuesday we're going to move forward with an actual vote on passing uh, the ESA bill, but Senator Clymer, Senator Johnson, and I are working together to try to pass an amendment that would expand eligibility. As it stands right now, the ESA bill, while good, is pretty narrow, and very small number of folks would be able to participate. We're trying to open that up to make it much broader school choice for much for many more families, and uh, and really increase eligibility. So if we are if we're successful in that on Tuesday, you'll have a school choice program that is substantial and affects. Uh, tens of thousands as opposed to a couple thousand. Can you expand on that, that a little bit? Tell us what, when, you, when you're talking about it's currently narrow, but under with your amendment, yours and Climber's amendment, it'll be much broader. What are we talking about? Well, right now you basically have to be at or below the poverty line to qualify. So in other words, we're trying to help low-income families have school choice, which we still want. We're not trying to change that. We're just trying to make it to where the number goes up. Like right now, if you're, you know, unfortunately, if you're wealthy in the in the state or country, you can probably afford private school. If you're if you're not doing well and you're economically more more disadvantaged, then this program is going to help you. But people in the middle are going to get nothing, which is oftentimes what happens. And so, and, and those are folks 
many times who really still need the help, right? I mean, let's think about it. You've got, you've got a lot of families. While you would not consider them poor, and they wouldn't be at the poverty line, they're still not bringing in uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They still might have two or three kids to raise, and they're still working to make ends meet. And they still may not be able to afford private schools. So what we're trying to do is raise the eligibility to where it's essentially four times the poverty rate, so you'd encompass much more many, uh, most of the middle income brackets at that point where families who are raising kids are actually able to take advantage of the program, and it's not just the super-rich or the, or the, less, or, or the economically uh, disadvantaged. Right. Well, and a lot of those folks in the middle are very concerned about the quality of education, which is why they want school choice. They want to be able to make the decision that's best for their students, and, and it, it's not necessarily always tied to income. It's tied to desire for a better education for their sons and daughters. Uh, let me ask, let me ask you this. Well, well, first of all, what your amendment does it have a shot at passing? Do you think it's? Uh, have you, I, think you it, I think it will. I mean, I think I think it will. I think it'll be narrow, but we're going to have a few Republicans who don't want that. Um, but I think the majority will. So. I don't expect any, any Democratic support, so we got to make sure the majority of the Republican caucus does support it so we can get an outright majority in the Senate. But I feel like there's a good chance of passage. I wouldn't say it's a slam dunk, but I think it's, it's feasible. It's in the realm of possibility. Okay, you went to the Senate floor uh, to talk about ATF gun registration, which is something that the federal government is engaged in that could affect South Carolinians. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, I, I think most people have heard by now. If they haven't, let's just go real quickly what it is. ATF, of course, an agency, it decided to pass a set of final rules changing eligibility for stabilizing braces for pistols. Essentially, as you know, a stabilizing brace for a pistol is something that you can use to hold the pistol against your forearm. It sort of helps with aiming and things like that. But it's a non-lethal uh, addition to a gun. It's, it's an it's a it's essentially, it doesn't change the magazine size. It doesn't change any kind of caliber limitations. It doesn't do any of that. It's just essentially yeah. an accessory that is non-lethal. And ATF said if you have this on your pistol, you have 120 days to register the pistol with the national, with the, under the National Firearms Act with the ATF, or you can surrender the gun to the federal authorities, or you can uh, take the stabilizing brace off. Essentially, we're talking tens of millions of people or at least tens of millions of weapons, and therefore millions of people, are going to be affected by this. And if you don't do one of those three things I just described in 120 days, you're going to be essentially prosecuted under the National Firearms Act as a felon. And that's insane, particularly since this is not, this never went through Congress. The National Firearms Act was passed 40 years ago, so certainly this was not the intent. They're making this up. And uh, we got to push back. So I've called on the state to join a lawsuit. Uh, National Gun Owner Association is already doing it. I'm trying to make sure Falcon is part of the suit to go after the ATF. I mean, this is insane. This is a violation of not only the Second Amendment, but the Fourth Amendment. You're right, the unreasonable search and seizure, and right. we're going to do all we can to fight that. Let's talk about life for a minute. Yesterday, the South Carolina House Judiciary Subcommittee on Special Laws passed um, out, I think, three to nothing. I think, I think the Democrats didn't show up for the subcommittee meeting. But it passed out John McCravey's H-447, uh, H-3447, which is Human Life Protection Act. It, it includes uh, some of the things that the Senate insisted they needed to pass a pro-life bill, um, but it still begins with banning abortion at conception. And Representative McCravey referenced Justice Few's comments about extending the um, right to life 
to all citizens once the legislature decides that life begins at conception. So what is your take on all that? Look, I'm just going to be, I've always said I believe life begins at conception. I've voted for bills to that effect. Right. Uh, I would vote for it again. That being said, I also understand the reality of the moment. And if the state Supreme Court would not uphold heartbeat, they're not going to uphold that until we make a change. Now, we are about to make a change. I've worked very hard to try to make sure Justice uh, Judge Gary Hill becomes the next associate justice of the state court. Looks like that's going to happen. We had to fight really hard. We had some people, even on our own side, who decided they wanted right. to try to delay the judicial elections, which would have basically just put Kay Hearn in there for another year or two. So I, I feel like with Gary Hill being on the court, we have a much better chance. So if we can get Gary Hill confirmed to the state court on February 8th, and replace Kay Hearn, then I think we probably have a three to two conservative, if you want to use that term. I mean, that's not, they're not supposed to be party, you know what I mean, but a, right, a strict right. constructionist majority that I think would uphold some pro life legislation versus a three to two majority right now that wouldn't. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm not against that bill by any stretch, but it's not made it to the Senate yet. I don't know if the votes are there in the Senate right now. I, I, I don't know that they are, but I do think let's at least put the cart, make sure we don't put the cart before the horse. Let's get Gary Hill on the state Supreme Court February 8th, or whatever we do pass, uh, we can actually get upheld. And, and, and frankly, even if that means we find a way to compromise again and get the heartbeat bill at least into effect until we can have elections, I do believe that some of the people in the Senate who take a more strident pro-choice position may have a hard time getting reelected. So, But until then, I don't know that the votes have changed in the Senate dramatically. So let's at least get heartbeat in effect so we're not a 20-week abortion state. And, and go from there. If John's bill makes it to the Senate, I'll vote for it. Uh, I don't know if it'll make it to the floor. I think it'll be objected to, unfortunately, pretty early. So I, I'm just trying right now to get Gary Hill in the court and see if we can at least get the heartbeat bill in effect and save as many lives as we can and be a six-week state versus a 20-week state, uh, hopefully, before the year's out. Okay, final question, uh, and I appreciate your time this morning, by the way. I know you've got a lot going on. Um, f- final question. By the, well, before I say that, let me say this. I, I feel like I feel pretty good about um, uh, Judge Gary Hill. Uh, I've had four or five personal conversations with him, and a lot of the people that I trust have endorsed him and have said to me that he will be a strict constructionist on the court. So I, I just wanted to say that I, I feel much, much better about him being the nominee that's left standing, and looks like he's going to be confirmed. Um, all right, Governor McMaster has said that he wants judicial reform. He wants more transparency. He made that clear in his State of the State address, and he also said that he wants to be the one to appoint justices and then the Senate confirm. Um, that's his idea, apparently, of judicial reform. So what do you think the chances are that we get judicial reform, and will it look anything like that? Chances of getting judicial reform are very good. Chances of it being bad are not real good. And the reason I say, look, I do support the idea of a governor making the appointment and Senate confirming. But here's who's not going to like that, the House representatives. Right. So right now, in this state, the House and the Senate both have a voice in elections for judges. You're not going to get enough votes. In the, the House is never going to vote to take away its own power on this issue. Right. There's no way they're going to do that. Yeah. So while I understand the governor's model is modeling the federal model that the president appointing and Senate confirming, I don't think that'll pass the House. It paid pass the Senate, but it won't pass the House. So what I think we have to do is find something that can make it across both chambers. And there's there's about four different bills. I'm I'm on all four of them because my attitude is anything's better than what we got right now. There's four bills in the Senate alone that would change the way this works. And, and, and there's different ways to look at it. Once all of them basically re 
change this whole Judicial Merit Selection Committee. Because right now, this JMSC, as it's called, it essentially is the bottleneck. So you've got a handful of well-placed folks in the legislature, most of, the, most of whom have always been attorneys, uh, who are essentially making the recommendation of what judges the legislature can vote on. So by the time it gets to us, the full body, you, you never really know what you've got. And that's what we experienced this time. And Gary Hill is a quality candidate. But we had two that were not. So three candidates came out. Two of the three, I believe, were judicial activists, even reported to a, a Republican legislature. So that's a problem. I think you'll see joint the Judicial Merit Selection Committee go away. I think we're going to either we'll severely reconstitute that or we're going to get rid of it. I just, But I do think it, I think it will involve both the House and the Senate. I don't think you'll have the governor making the appointments with the Senate alone. Before we go, congratulations on your new degree. You just earned an, a, a master's in American Legal Studies from Liberty University. Uh, not too bad for somebody with your schedule. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's my... Second master's program I've attended, and that'll be the last one. I, I don't think I'll ever be Dr. Kimbrell like this Dr. Beam over there, but, you know, I got a, I've got a reasonably decent education, as they say, so hopefully I can keep working in the Senate. God bless you, my friend. Thanks for your time this morning. Have a good weekend. Thank you. God bless. Take yep. care. Bye-bye. Appreciate Senator Kimbrell being on, giving us so much time this morning. Golly, there's a lot of stuff going on. Down at the legislature, of course, that's always the case. This time of year, they're uh, sort of getting into the, the meat of the schedule, and we'll keep you updated as much as possible, particularly on the education vote, which is uh, going to come next week, likely on Tuesday. All right, we're, we're very glad. If you're watching on Facebook, you know we've got some guests in the studio today, and we have Drew Lott with us, and Drew is the Community Outreach, uh, Outreach Director, I should say, for Lutheran Hospice of the Upstate, and we also have Mary Epps. Now, Mary, tell us your title. My title is patient care coordinator, but patient I work. Care coordinator. Okay. I work as program director and clinical director. Okay, so you do everything that Drew doesn't do. Correct. That is correct. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Thanks and, so much and, for having and, us and, as well. And, yeah, it's our, it's our pleasure. Duties is, is assigned by the board, I guess. <laughs> is how that works. Um, all right. Most people know what hospice is. Um, m- many people. Um, have had to take advantage of hospice care. But for those who may not know that term or exactly what the function of hospice is, uh, explain how hospice works. Okay. Either one will be fine. Or you can both talk at the same time. We can figure it out. (laughs) Um, Thanks. Um, Hospice is actually covered by Medicare and Medicaid, which is great. So it's 100% paid for. You never receive a bill from us, which is great. It's really focused on comfort care versus curative care. So we do deal with end of life, but we're really there to serve families and serve the patients in their homes or wherever they call home, whether it be a facility, whether it be the private residence, or whether it be a skilled nursing facility. Right. So in other words, when, when doctors decide there's not anything else that we can do to preserve life in the long run, then hospice steps in to provide the care for someone that they're going to need as they face the end of life. Would that be a good way to put it? It would be. Yeah. Yes. Just because, and, and, and I just want to say um, my family, I mean, we've had family members, my mom, my dad, my sister, and then my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. I mean, they've all experienced um, hospice care. And then I've had people, being in the ministry, um, I've had a lot of people who obviously were under hospice care that I was ministering to. And I've I've always been impressed by the care that hospice gives to people. Now, your organization is a little bit unique because you're faith-based, 
nonprofit hospice. So patient services and patient care is based on the idea of the scripture, right? Absolutely. Mary, tell us a little bit about the nature of that care. It's different nature because we are we are there for the, the long haul. We're not just in and out. We, we stay with our patients um, if they're struggling to breathe, if they're having difficulty with, with any type of situation, we're there. Not just for the patient, we're there for the families. Um, we can pray with our patients, which is so different than any other area of medicine right. I've ever been in. Right. Um, it, it's just, just very unique. And um, You know, well, talk about, I know when we sat down and talked before, um, you, you have a real passion about this. I do. Um, and, and tell us where that comes from. What is it that made you so caring, deeply caring for the people that you have the opportunity to come in contact with? Well, I, I think it's more than, than one thing. But, of course, God put that on my heart to take care of people. And I started out in, you know, the burn unit in Atlanta. And I saw a lot of things in, in that area. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I helped a lot of people, but you could never get one-on-one. You couldn't truly um, get to know these people and know their hearts and talk to them about God, and um, it, it's just a... It, so it, that's the opportunity that really means the <laughs> most to you. It's it's caring, but also caring with values that can affect eternity. Correct. Give them real comfort as they approach, so to speak, the end of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I I agree. I, I think that's a, a wonderful a wonderful opportunity for you. Um, how many patients do you typically work with on uh, you know at the at a time, so so to speak? Well, numbers go up and down in terms of mm-hmm. census numbers, and you know we're we our, our biggest thing is to do small nurse to patient ratios. Mm-hmm. Um, you know a lot of Love hospices will have 15 to 25 patients apiece, and there's just it, it, it's hard to take care of them effectively that way. Right. So, so you, tr- you kind of keep the numbers substantially under that. Definitely. Right? Um, okay. Eight to 10 is typically our, our number, and we base it also off acuity. So if we have a high acuity patient, then I'm not going to load a nurse up with other patients. So for you've been, uh, Drew, I think in the upstate for about 27 years. Actually, um, been about 13 years. 13 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's correct. All right. Um, and so as far as consistency is concerned, you um, have a lot of experience with the upstate, with people in the upstate, organizations in the upstate. So that helps you be more effective. Um, you know, just plus the fact that people feel comfortable of all denominations, even though this is Lutheran based, mm-hmm. uh, people of all denominations feel comfortable turning to you for the care that they need. Yeah, and I think to add to that, Tony, you know, our morals, our values, our ethics are really based on Christian principles and the right. way that it, we practice, right. uh, which is, I think is important. Um, but you're correct. We will serve all patients um, with any belief system as far as denomination as well as faith. So. Now, you work with, I'm sure you work somewhat with the hospitals um, in terms of coordinating the care that you give along with the care that they're receiving if they need uh, prescription drugs or if they need some type of treatment. They have to be on oxygen. They have to be. Do, do you do that as well, or do you coordinate that with the hospitals and the people that do it? We handle all of that. Okay. Um, but I do want to add, you know, there's a lot of misconception about, about hospice and 
you know, we hear all the time, well, they got a shot of that morphine and that was it. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that is not how hospice works. Um, pain, symptom management, you know, morphine is not always the best thing. So we do a detailed pain assessment and sometimes it's spiritual pain. Sometimes it's emotional pain. Um, so, you know, the, the, the common thing I hear is morphine, morphine, <laughs> and right. that's, that's not always the best choice of drugs. So that is not what we do. We base our care plans off the patient and not just off of giving a drug. Well, and that's, that's important because what you're talking about is the quality of life mm-hmm. for someone who's coming to the end of life. And obviously, if they're just on high doses of morphine, there's no interaction, very little interaction with the family or people around them at a time when that's incredibly important. So I would, I would assume that you encourage that with people that you are taking care of, that you look for ways, as you've said, to manage pain without it being just completely invasive to the point that they can't interact with family members. Absolutely. And, and honestly, morphine... In the format that we use, concentrated morphine, um, breathing, when they're short of breath, it changes that cycle of the breathing. It's not always the best pain medicine. So uh, to me, one thing that stands out with us is that we really focus on that. We focus on pain management. And I've, you know, been with several hospices in the past, and um, I've stuck with Lutheran for so long because we're able to do it different. Right. And um, the focusing on the patient, focusing on the family and the caring aspect of having enough fewer patients in the queue, so to speak, mm -hmm. so that you can spend real time with the ones that you have. I think that's incredibly important. Now, Drew, you've got I think it says that you have three main hospice office locations. Talk about that. a little. That is correct. Yeah, we actually our main office here up in the upstate that Mm -hmm. we serve out of. We serve seven counties in the upstate. Uh, We also have a hospice office located in the Midlands, which we serve uh, five counties. And then we have an office down in the low country in North Charleston, which serves three counties there. Okay, help people understand if if they're, I mean, they're hearing about the service. Uh, Mary, they're they're hearing the way you talk about it with uh, a lot of care and compassion. I'm sure they're going to be interested in knowing how they can get in touch with you. What's the process by which, do do patients get a chance to choose which hospice, I would assume, which hospice company they have? They do have a choice. Um, A lot of patients do not know they have a choice. Right. Um, sometimes different places will just say, you want to go on hospice? And they, they give them a hospice. Um, but you always have a choice of what hospice you go, go to. Yeah. And if you're, you're interested in Lutheran, um, we can, I don't know how you do it, posting phone numbers and that type of thing. Oh, we can thing, do that. We'll, we'll put, uh, we can put some information up on our website um, and we can refer to it. But go ahead and tell us now the best way to get in touch with you. Okay. Yeah, um, probably the easiest way, actually, you can literally pick up the phone and call Mary and myself. Our main office number is 864-848-1777. Uh, you can speak with us if you have any additional questions. So we do have family members that call in and ask about our services, and we're able to educate them as well. Um, with hospice, it does require a physician order. Right. Um, so basically, we would get in touch with the facility.
facility or the or the hospital uh, that is doing the referral and then we'll touch base directly with the family we're very very personable we like to meet family face to face I think that's really important to us yes. and you know one of the things that was so important to me with Lutheran Hospice is that we focus on caring for souls versus numbers and I think that that's critical in this in this line of work well yeah. it is because you're talking about um, the most serious critical time of a person's life transition from this life to the next life mm-hmm. for us who are believers we believe that this is not the end so mm-hmm. this is a this is a co- sort of a transitional phase you know I, I used to I still do this sometimes when I talk at um, I have to do a funeral um, I tell the story about my dad uh, when my grandmother got older and needed someone to stay with her at night we lived across the road and across the cornfield, literally, from my grandmother's house. So um, we, my grandmother had about 400 acres of corn and soybeans. And so when my dad, I just remember my dad would be sitting in his chair end of a long day, and he would get up and say, okay, I'm going to spend the night with mom. And he would start to walk out the door. And I, I was about seven or eight. I'd go with him a lot of times. I'd just, you know, latch on to him well we had to walk through the cornfield okay to get to her house now it's 10 o'clock at night I mean dad would usually stay home as long as he could you know and then he'd head out so I'm walking with my dad through this corn patch at night and he's got a flashlight Mm -hmm. and um, when you're eight years old that could be kind of a scary thing so we'd come out of the cornfield and we'd get across the yard and they would go up the steps and then there was this porch that was probably I don't know it was uh, maybe five yards, but it was it led up to the door that went into my grandmother's house. And the door was always open because she expected him to come. The light was on, and behind that door, it was one of the most beautiful places. My grandmother's house was always filled with the scent of baking. Um, with I mean, she had a fire in the fireplace. It was the warmest, safest place that I could think think about. And I've often thought about death being sort of like that. You know, you, you have to traverse sometimes something that's a little bit scary and unknown, but there's a point where you can see what the reward is, I believe. And then you cross that last little space and you enter into what I think is, is pure joy because it's the fellowship of the one who created us and the one who knows us more than anybody. Um, and I, I try to use that as a, as a word of comfort. Let me ask you this last question, and then we're going to, you know, even after we're, we're through here, we're going to talk about the number and encourage people mm-hmm. to call you. But um, when, when you deal, Mary, with hospice mm-hmm. patients, what is the biggest concern that's on their mind? I mean, and because I'm sure they express things to you and okay. not talking about anybody in particular, but just in general, uh, is it concern about leaving family behind? Is it thoughts about what's ahead? Is it concern over their condition? What, what, do, you, what do they express to you the most? It really depends on the diagnosis and the family dynamics, mm-hmm. but I would say the thing that is the biggest concern is whether it's going to be painful, mm-hmm. if they're going to have difficulty breathing, and then who they're leaving behind. Um, those would be the, the, t- the three. The three, yeah. and it really depends on what their situation is, but those would definitely be the three. You know, when my sister passed away, um, she was, 
she, she well first of all I was 25 when she was born mm-hmm. so I was like ha- having two mamas mm-hmm. but um, she was a heavy smoker and um, she used to I, I watched her she would roll her own cigarettes I mean, yeah. it carried rolling papers and tobacco in a pouch. I mean, that's crazy. It, who does that? Nobody does. Of course, back in the 60s and 70s, people were doing that. So um, she developed emphysema, and uh, that was her, her, her main fear was breathing. She was afraid. Yeah. I, I heard her express to her doctor, who was so compassionate with her, that, you know, I don't want to be at the end trying to breathe, trying to struggle. And I remember the doctor looked at her and said, Ann, I promise that that's not going to happen, that whatever we have to do to make sure if you get to that point, you won't know that you're struggling with it. I mean, you know, just to to ease the fear that she had of the one thing that just made her dread that end of life moment. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of that's the kind of work that you do, being there at that moment when they need to hear from somebody who cares about them and who's built a relationship with them to be reassured as they face death. I think that's a a beautiful thing, and I appreciate the work both of you do. If I could add one more thing to what you just said and building that relationship with the the staff that's coming in. You know, a lot of people think it's it's like the last three days you're on your your deathbed. Um, If a person qualifies for, for hospice, and one of the qualifiers is six months if mm-hmm. the disease continues in the typical fashion that the, the disease typically does, um, then we can qualify them. And the earlier we can get somebody and build that relationship and surround them with a team um, of, of multiple disciplines, we find that that's the, the, the better way to right. do it because Absolutely. they do learn learn to trust you, like learn who you are. We learn who they are and what they like and, and don't like and what's good for them. You know, I would think people are reluctant to call in hospice yes. because, you know, that's that's the reality. That's mm-hmm. the moment when you're saying, okay, we're, we're preparing not for the next stage of life but to transition. And, um, and, and yet the sooner, I think that's a great point, mm-hmm. the sooner you come to that, then the better for the patient in the long run because of the amount of care that can be given. Absolutely. The word hospice scares people. Yes. Because I think there's a lack of understanding in what we do. But it should give them hope. It should. Yeah. There's many studies out there that show people that go on hospice actually live 27 days longer than they do without hospice. Right. Thank both of you very much for coming in. Uh, Mm I appreciate the work you do. I think it's the Lord's work. And we're going to be excited here at the station to continue to let people know how to get in touch with you. Thank you for having us. Thank Thank you, you Mary Epps and Drew. Good to have you. Um, Let me just give you that information again. Lutheran Hospice, uh, if you're interested in getting in touch with them, or actually you might want to just write this down and put it somewhere with your important papers, because maybe this is not something that you're dealing with today, but... um, if, if you need it in the future, then you would have it. Lutheran Hospice, and the number is 848, eight, uh, 864-848-1777. So it's actually kind of easy to remember. 864-848-1777. Well, I'll tell you about something else. You know, we've, we've had a couple of interviews now about momentum, uh, and uh, tomorrow is the day. It is actually upon us. So starting at 8.30 in the morning, we're going to be serving 
biscuits, and the doors are going to open at the Momentum Conference at Crossroads Baptist Church, which is over here at 705 Anderson Ridge Road in Greer. Uh, The conference technically runs from 9 in the morning until 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. There's going to be multiple breakout sessions. We've talked about some of those. I'll be doing a breakout session along with Dr. Robert Jackson, Philip Allen, um, several others. And then, of course, we've got the chainsaw artist, James Brinley, who is going to be with us. He's going to be working on a sculpture and uh, out of wood, of course. And at the end of the conference, we're going to give that away to one of the conference attendees. So we, we know we've got a good number of men that are planning to be there tomorrow. We've got some buses coming in. Um, our keynote speaker is Dr. Neilan Brown, and our musical guests are Eric Childers and band. So it's, it's just going to be a great day for men. Worship, um, good food. We're going to have barbecue for lunch. Uh, a great speaker to encourage you, breakout speakers that deal with issues that men deal with every day, and the cost is it's $25. I mean, it's very minimal. So in any event, um, just come on out tomorrow if you can make it. And once again, that's at 705 Anderson Ridge Road in Greer, and it's Crossroads Baptist Church, the Momentum Men's Conference. Um Got about a minute and a half left up to the top of the hour. Uh, I just want to circle back around on something that Senator Kimbrell was talking about. You know, here we are in South Carolina, one of the reddest of the red states, at least from a Republican Party control of the state standpoint. Um, we've talked many times about the fact that we have 88 representatives that are Republicans in the House out of 124. We've got 30 senators out of 46 senators in the Senate. And then we have the governor all the way down through all constitutional offices that are Republican. And yet we have a very liberal abortion law right now, 22 weeks. And I was at the subcommittee hearing yesterday, by the way, thanks to Austin Barker for filling in for me so I could go down there. And it was very gratifying to see that bill, John McCravey's bill, H3774, if you want to track it, at sc.statehouse.gov. sc.statehouse.gov, you can go and, and watch the progress of the bill. But it passed out of the subcommittee yesterday. It's called the Human Life Protection Act. It protects life beginning at conception. And it's likely going to pass the Judiciary Full Committee next Tuesday. Uh, that's what our hope is. It's on kind of a fast track in the House. Comes out of committee on Tuesday. It'll go to the House floor for debate, and hopefully we can get it passed and sent over to the Senate. Um, right now, the the bills in the Senate are uh, there isn't a bill over there that I'm aware of that would ban abortion beginning at conception. You heard Senator Kimbrell talk about the political reality of the Senate, and he's right. I mean, it's just it's going to be a heavy lift to get any kind of of meaningful pro-life legislation, I think, through the Senate, certainly the House version. So be praying about that and go ahead and start contacting your senator and tell him you want him to protect life beginning at conception. 